Okay, we are back in our series of studies through the letters of John. And last time we finished his first letter, 1 John, completed that. So this evening we're going to begin 2 John. This is a much shorter letter than the first one. I'm thinking, uh, way I've got it mapped out, I think we're going to do three studies through this letter. So, I want to give just a brief introduction before we get started in the study proper. I want to point out that some of the main points uh, that John makes uh, through the first letter are revisited in 2 John, actually in, in 2 and 3 John. Uh, these, these three letters, they, they, they are three separate, distinct letters, but they have a common thread that goes through them. And that common thread is the true nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and the importance to the church of identifying, of understanding, and of embracing that true nature. Now, second, second and third John, uh, they, they each contain... Uh, what I would see as reiteration, even repetition as to uh, what John has covered in the first letter. And we need to understand that there's purpose in this. John has purpose when he repeats something, when he goes back to a topic and repeats it. He has purpose, but even more importantly, the Lord has purpose. And this is true not only in these letters, but all through Scripture. Each time we return to a previous point, we look at it from a slightly different perspective. And the end result, if we're paying attention, the end result is that we gain a greater understanding of each of these points. We will better understand the importance that the Lord places on each of these points if we hang in there, if we follow his lead and pay as close attention each time he takes us back to a point as we did the first time. Also, revisiting helps us not to forget or to lose sight of these specific points and their importance. So I'm taking the time to say this because I want to I ask you, as we go through 2 John, and then when we're finished there, we're going to go through 3 John, I want to ask you, please don't view 2 and 3 John as throwaway studies. Don't view them as unnecessary repetition or as being irrelevant because we might be talking about the same thing that we talked about and studied in 1 John. In other words, don't mentally check out. There's value to this. I mean, like I said, this is, this is not just John's purpose, but this is the Lord's purpose in taking us through some of these points again. So with that being said, um, the main theme of 2 John is this, in a nutshell, that meaningful and true Christian love and fellowship is always rooted in sound doctrine, in truth. The focal point of this letter is expressing this principle through what I'm calling appropriate Christian hospitality. And we will develop this principle as we make our way through the letter. In John's three letters, the three epistles, 
he weaves a tapestry of agape love and the truth of the incarnation of God in the man Jesus Christ. In other words, he weaves a tapestry of love and sound doctrine. And he weaves them together in a way that they are inseparable. See, the true nature of God as love is fully expressed in the incarnation. So I'm going to say that embracing any doctrine that denies the incarnation is, well, put very simply, it's heresy. And it's not following the one and only true God. So, accordingly, the expression of this same love, this agape love for one another is, as John taught us through his first letter, it is irrefutable proof that we are truly children of God. And then one last point that I want to make in the introduction is this. An important element of John's focus in this letter is that an integral part of loving one another is protecting one another from those who claim to be from God and claim to be teaching God's truth. In other words, those who are are claiming to teach sound doctrine, but in reality are neither. And you see, this is exactly what John does all through all three of his letters. He does it on many different levels, but that's exactly what he's doing. So with that as our backdrop, uh, tonight what I want to cover is the first three verses of 2 John. So if you want to join me in 2 John, let's read together verses 1 through 3, and then we will look at each verse independently. 2 John, beginning in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Amen. Okay, verse 1. Let's begin by looking at the way he opens this, who he addresses this letter to, the elect lady and her children. So let's talk about to whom John actually wrote this letter. There's two different views, two possibilities that are out there. One is that he wrote this letter to an individual woman, an unnamed but an individual woman and her household. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that he wrote 2 John to the same audience as he wrote 1 John. And that would be, although it's not specifically identified, but it is commonly, universally believed to be, the audience of 1 John, is believed to be a network of associated churches Um, around the region of Ephesus. 
So in this view, John's address in 2 John, the elect lady would be the church universal, the wider body of Christ represented in this specific letter by the specific local churches to which John is writing. And then her children would then be a reference to the specific or individual members of those churches. Okay? And we do have examples of this type of writing elsewhere in Scripture. I selected just two, two simple examples, but there are more. Uh, first, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, the Apostle Paul similarly personifies the church as the mother of those who are born again. Members, the individual members of the church. And then in Ephesians, he again similarly personifies the church in uh, the fifth chapter as the bride of Christ. So this is not uncommon throughout Scripture. And the symbolism that we see, even in just in these two examples, fits very well in the emphasis that John makes in 2 John uh, verse 1, that the elect lady, the church, is loved by all who know the truth, by all true Christians. This would be John assuring the churches to whom he's writing that they are loved, not only by him, but by all of the brethren. Similarly to as a mother loves her children or as Christ loves his bride. Okay, so those are the two views. And the reality is, is that either of these views is, is possible. Okay, there's nothing about either view that, that, that uh, you know, completely un- eliminates it from possibility. These, these views are debated among and have been for a long time. They're debated among good, solid Bible teachers. So there's, there's good, solid men on both sides that hold both of these views. I am convinced that the Apostle wrote 2 John to the same audience as he wrote 1 John. And I'm not going to try to build my entire case, but I've got a short list of reasons that I came to this conclusion that I'll share with you. First, it's generally held that these three letters were written at the same time and distributed together. So, that, that in and of itself isn't conclusive, but to me, there's a logic to First and Second John being addressed to the same audience. Um, also, the principles that are taught in this letter, in Second John, they can certainly be applied to a household or to a church, either one. But to me, in studying the letter the overall tone of the letter seems to be directed to churches more so than to an individual or an individual household. You see, in John's day, teachers of false doctrine were prolific. We learned that as we studied through, through the first letter. They were prolific and they sought to infiltrate 
the church, and to lead people to believe and to embrace their false doctrines. And John diligently resisted them. That's what 1 John is all about, right? He diligently resisted them, and he taught the young church to do the same. So, again, when I, when I look at this, when viewed in the context of 1 John and the entire letter of 2 John, it just seems more logical and characteristic of John that he would be directing his concerns and instructions that he lays out in 2 John, that he would be directing those to entire churches more so than an individual and her household. Now, if John was writing, there's another thing to consider, if John was writing to an individual, his statement that all who know the truth love her and her children, seems that that would require that all believers everywhere would know her and love her, have knowledge of her. And it just seems to me, it's simply unrealistic that John would think this, that he would think that every believer everywhere would even be aware of one particular person uh, in, in one of these churches. However, you know, the flip side to that is that it does make biblical sense if John is referring to the church universal when he says the elect lady, if he's referring to the church universal as, a, as an institution, as a, as a collective, as a whole, and the individual members of local churches collectively. Another thought to consider is Second John is somewhat of a summary of main points contained in First John. And then what he does is he gives specific instructions on how to handle the Antichrists who were currently among these ch- churches and who might come into their midst in the future. So again, I, I say it's, it just seems logical to me that these instructions would be directed toward entire churches, toward whole churches, not just or only an individual or an individual household. Um, And think about this. John characterizes the lady as elect. The elect lady. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, there's nothing inappropriate in referring to an individual in this manner. However, Emphasizing elect in reference to the church universal would certainly draw our attention to God's sovereignty in the very existence of the church. And again, this is, this is common, somewhat common throughout Scripture. The Apostle Paul parallels this principle in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And he says, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So again, it just seems to be a better fit characteristically for John. Also, I think that there's a good possibility that this was written as a form of code when he's referring to the elect lady and her children. And I think that because of the heavy Roman persecution under which John was living at the time. And then it would also serve as a very logical explanation as to why he introduces himself in this letter as the elder rather than introducing himself as John the Apostle. So when I consider all of this, I think that this view dovetails very well with the biblical principle developed throughout the New Testament of all true believers having a love for the church, the church as a collective. It's subtle, but again, I see it as another um, proof, another test somewhat uh, that John gives us of true salvation. In other words, all true believers love the church. And like I said, I'm talking about the, the church as a, as a collective, as a spiritual institution, along with loving each individual member of the church, the brethren. So I want to point out, I mean, it's important for us to understand this. The overall message of the letter is essentially the same regardless of which view you hold. Okay? So the overall message, whichever view you hold, the message is essentially the same in the letter. But in my opinion, the same audience view, same audience as First as John, the same audience view is a much better fit within the context of John's message in both First and Second John. So kind of in a nutshell... I mean, that's my view, and in a nutshell, that's why I hold that view. That's the perspective, or that's the view I'll be teaching uh, the entire book from. Okay? If you have any questions about that, if you want to dialogue more, um, feel free to, to approach me after the study or later. Okay, let's go on in verse 1. He, he goes on to say, uh, he begins, "...the elder to the elect lady and her children." Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So here what John is doing is he's defining or he's explaining that in which his love is based or rooted. The love that he has for the church and all of the individual members of the church. And his reference here to the truth, what he's referring to here is the truth of the gospel, what they have known 
from the beginning. See, the love that John has for these believers, it's not, and we've, we've talked about this uh, before, we studied this in 1 John, but this love that he has for these believers, it's not a natural love. It's not a love that's based upon common interests that he might have or personality traits that would naturally draw people together. Consider this. There might have been individuals that, you know, individuals in all of these churches to whom he was writing, there might have been individuals that he didn't know very well. There might have been individuals that that he didn't know at all, that he had never even met. So even logically, this makes sense. But the love that he's talking about, the love that he has for them, this is agape love. And we've We've studied this many, many times together. I know that you are familiar with this, but it's always good to go over it and remind ourselves. This is the love that took the Lord Jesus to the cross for us. The love that Jesus had for each one of us when we were sinners, when we were at enmity with him, when we hated him, he expressed this love to us in going to the cross. So John loves them the same way, with that love, that agape love. It's not because of any natural personality traits or common interests that he might have with them. It's not because of anything about them that that might draw uh, draw them to him in a a natural or or in an earthly sense but it's because of the bond forged by the Lord Jesus on the cross that John has with these believers. You see, Jesus died for John and for each one of these true believers. And that love that took the Lord to the cross is the love that John has for each one of them agape love. It's the love that binds each one of us together. If we are true believers, we are bound together by this love. It's the love that we all have, all true believers have for one another. And this is how and why John includes all true believers in this statement. He says, the, uh, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. See, John can easily say, I love you. He can state that definitively, but how can he speak that way on behalf of all true believers? Well, the knowledge that John speaks of here is what we call saving knowledge, right? True believers don't simply know about the truth. They truly, at a heart level, believe the truth. They embrace the truth. They have committed themselves to the validity and the absolute truth of the gospel, which is the truth about Jesus and all it entails. It's this knowledge, this belief that is only possible because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. 
we are only able, as believers, we're only able to know the truth about the Lord Jesus because he has fundamentally changed us in the new birth. The love to which John is referring here is what binds us together, all true believers. This is why John confidently states that all who know the truth love the elect lady and her children the same way he does. See, he states it as confidently as he states it about himself because he's, he intimately and integrally links together these concepts of love and truth. See, it's impossible to love, to agape love one another apart from the absolute truth of the gospel. Think about that. It's impossible to love with God's love apart from the truth of the gospel. Likewise, it's impossible to know the truth, to embrace the truth, to have experienced the new birth. It's impossible to be a true believer and not agape the brethren, not express agape to the brethren. This was one of, the, one of John's tests in 1 John, one of the tests that defines true believers and exposes the false believers. It was this truth that was under attack by the Antichrists, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the incarnation. And protecting this truth was so important to John because outside of this truth, true Christian love, true Christian fellowship just simply does not, really cannot exist. So again, here, John is demonstrating that truth and love are integral. They cannot be separated in a true Christian environment. Okay, let's go on to um, verse 2. He goes on to say, everything that he has stated in verse 1, then he says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So in this verse, John is continuing or further explaining this truth, and he's linking it to much of what he taught us and we studied together in 1 John. What he's doing right here, he says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, What he's doing is he's personifying the truth as God himself, God's Holy Spirit. You see, God is truth, and he abides in every true believer. I want to take you to the Gospel of John, because uh, John records in his Gospel um, the Lord Jesus stating this very principle. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 14 Verses 16 and 17. He says, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, why and how does John love these believers to whom he's addressing? John loves them with the love that emanates from God himself. God loves John, and he also loves every true believer. Again, this is what binds us together. So by definition, John loves every true believer, and every true believer loves one another. John's building this case. And again, we're not talking about a natural affection for one another. It's not a natural love. It doesn't, uh, the, the, the love that John has for these believers, it, its origin is not John. The, the, the love that we have for one another, the origin is not you, it's not me. The origin is God himself. That's the source of our love for one another. So John loves them with love that is the very essence of God himself, which is an essential element of God's very nature. This should remind us of what we studied together back in 1 John, in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, when John stated that God is love. Do you remember that study? I pointed out at the time that that is one of the most important doctrinal statements in the entire Bible. It's one of the verses that defines God for us. Very succinctly, God is love. This is what God is. Now, I pointed out back then, it's not the only verse. This isn't the full definition of God. God is love, but he's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also glorious. He's also all-powerful. He's also just. And the list goes on. We can't forget or leave out these other essential elements of God's nature. But the point here is that love is an important, a critical, and an essential part of God's nature. We will never, ever know and understand God without understanding his nature as love, as agape. So if you are a true believer, if you have a true relationship with the Lord Jesus, if you are a true member of God's family, then God abides in you. Agape abides in you. And God within you is, God is a spring within you who fills you, is constantly filling you, to overflowing with agape. And the very purpose of that is loving all true believers with that same love, that same love that God has for you. 
It's, a, he, it, it's just constantly flowing, and God intends for it to overflow, to pour out of you, and to touch one another. And that's happening with all of us. So, as true believers, the conclusion is you will, absolutely will express agape. It's part of who and what you are as a believer. And then conversely, we need to look at this. If you don't, if you do not express agape, there's only one reason for that. This is what John taught us. There's only one reason for that. And that reason is you don't know God. If you don't love the brethren, if you don't express agape, you don't know God. And God does not abide in you. So this is how and why John knows without doubt, without hesitation, he knows absolutely that all true believers love them in the same way he does. Do you see how he can, he can it's, it's easy to, to grasp him making a definitive statement about himself. I love them. But he's making that same definitive statement about every true believer. And this is how he's able to do that. It's where he says, not only I, but also all who know the truth. It's because God dwells within each and every true believer. There's no believer out there, not then, not now, ever. No believer in which God is not dwelling. God dwells in every true believer. And that that indwelling truth is the very cause, the very source of this love that John is describing. Agape love. The Lord pours his Holy Spirit into the heart of every single new believer at the moment of his salvation. And that presence, the, the influence of God's Holy Spirit within us causes us to love in a new and in a very different way than we were ever able to before. We were incapable of loving in this way prior to salvation. Let me read you from Romans chapter 5, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, or writes, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Praise God. So John's description here, he describes the Spirit as the Spirit of truth who causes this love. And this means, what this means to us is that our right relationship to God's truth stirs in us an ability, a new ability to express God's love. We are capable now of expressing that love, that agape love. So when he says, when John says, the truth that abides in us, he's referencing 
the gospel truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Lord Jesus, the truth that he so fervently defends in 1 John, the truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And that is an essential element of and in true salvation. And then he goes on to say, the end of of this verse, he goes on to say, and will be with us forever. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. He includes this statement as an encouragement in regard to the assurance of their salvation and for us, uh, an encouragement to us also. True believers dwell with God and God dwells in them, and he always will. And again, this is not because of anything that any of us have ever done. It's not because of anything that we will ever do. It's because of, and only because of, God's unending, eternal, and steadfast love for us. Agape love. God decided to attach his love to us. And that will never change. The defining element of each true believer and child of God. Praise God and amen. All right, let's um, let's look at verse 3. Here he says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now this verse is a, what I would call a, a, a customary greeting included in the beginning of most letters of that day, most letters of the, of the New Testament. Um, but there is, in this greeting, in John's greeting here, there is a small but a significant difference from most. In most of the New Testament epistles, the greeting is a prayer for or an extension of God's grace, mercy, and peace that's being extended by the writer to the audience. I'll give you just a couple of examples. But if you, if you read through any of the, of the New Testament letters, you'll see this. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. It says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. See, so so Paul is extending this to his readers. Then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, May, so this is somewhat of a prayer being offered, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. These are just just two examples to make my point. John's greeting here is subtly different, just in the wording, in that it is a declaration 
of this blessing from God upon his readers. Listen to it again. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. And that will be, it's not uh, the original phrase, it's not a future tense. He's not saying it's going to be. It's a declaration. It is and always will be with us. I believe this is meant by John to further instill assurance of salvation and their standing, their new standing as believers before God. He makes this verse an assurance that as God's beloved children, that grace, mercy, and peace will be, or as I said, is and always will be theirs. There is a a certainty expressed in these words that John wrote. It's a certainty that's based on in God's loving faithfulness toward all of his children, toward you and toward me. This is um, this is certainly expressed throughout the scriptures. Let me give you just one example, a beautiful example, from the sixth verse of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, verse 6. David writes, Surely, there's the certainty, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise God. Now let's take a look. We'll take a short look, but let's take a look at each of these three blessings that John declares. Grace. What is grace? Well, first, grace is undeserved. Grace is always undeserved. The focus here is on what God gives to us. God gives us what we don't deserve. Now, first and foremost, our salvation. He gave us our salvation, and we certainly did not deserve it. But within our salvation, there is ongoing blessings throughout our lives that God gives to us. And I think that if we're honest, we're honest with ourselves, for each one of us, if we examine our lives and look at all of the blessings that God has given us in and during and through our lives, we would be able to honestly say that we just don't deserve those blessings. Yet, he gives them to us. This is a reference to God's gracious dealing with his children and his corresponding disposition toward them. You see, because of God's grace, we are now, and will always be, we are now at peace with God. We're at peace with him. We're no longer at enmity with God. So it's a reference to all that God has done, all that God is doing, and all that God will do for us in Jesus Christ.
He has saved, he has saved us. He is sanctifying us and he will glorify us. Praise God. God's grace. Mercy. Now, mercy is also undeserved. The focus here is on what God does not give to us or what he withholds from us. And in God's mercy, he withholds from us that which we do deserve. And what do we deserve? We deserve God's judgment. But he withholds it. He does not give us what we deserve. This is ultimately expressed in the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, and again, if we're honest, everyone here would be able to make this statement. We unquestionably deserve God's judgment. There's no question there. But he withholds that judgment. He withholds that judgment and he makes us his own. His own children. His own family. Our salvation is the ultimate expression of God's grace. It's also the very essence of God's mercy in our lives. Praise God. And then finally, he says peace. Peace is a state of mind and a state of being that results from God's grace and God's mercy in a person's life. In the, <clears throat> in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word usually translates the Hebrew term, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, the Hebrew term shalom. And again, we've talked about this before, but the principle or the concept of shalom has to do with wholeness in relationship, specifically between a true believer and the Lord. It's a blessing. It's a blessing in which God has repaired our relationship with him. Now, our relationship prior to our salvation, our relationship with God was broken. And it wasn't just broken a little bit. It didn't have a hairline crack. Okay, It was broken in, in, in a way which I would refer to as it was broken beyond repair. You know, uh, the, 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 the best example I could come up with is um, if you crash your car, sometimes if, if, if you crash your car, sometimes the insurance company will look at it and they'll evaluate it and they'll say, this vehicle is beyond repair. They call it, we're going to total the car, right? And what they're saying is, it's beyond repair. It's not worth fixing. And I know there's, there's some differences there, but like I said, that was the best example I could, I could think of in, in, in today's vernacular. Okay, But our relationship with God, it, 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 it wasn't 
just beyond repair in that sense. It was, in an absolute sense, it was beyond repair. We were unable, absolutely unable, to repair that broken relationship. There was nothing that we could have done to repair that relationship. Only God himself was able to repair that relationship, and he did it. So he was able to, and for us, for those who are true, truly born again, he did repair it. Now, what's the result of God's repair work to our relationship with him? The result is harmony between us and God. We were broken, and now we have harmony with God. There's no more enmity. There is peace. There is shalom. And then here's, here's something else to think about. It's, it is this same peace, this same shalom, <clears throat> in which we are now able to pursue and to experience the repair of relationships with one another, within the church, within the brethren. Think about that. I mean, God repaired our relationship with him. But there are, you know, there are times when there are broken relationships between the brethren, between two born-again Christians. And sometimes those relationships on a natural level are beyond repair. But not so with God. Not so at all with God. You see, God is the master repairman in all of our relationships. All of our relationships. In our relationship with him, in our relationships with one another. So, we are now and forevermore at peace with God. And he is at peace with us. Because he, not us, but he has remade that which was broken. Praise God. Praise God. Okay. Um, uh, John then goes on to say, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. So the source of these wonderful blessings is God himself, the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Now here, John's wording is specific and intentional. What he does is he firmly identifies and places Jesus in the Godhead as Son to God the Father. This particular wording put emphasis on John's main theme all through his first letter. And that is not to separate the earthly human Jesus from the heavenly Son of God. They are inseparable. And that's what these antichrists were attempting to do. 
It was meant, his statement here, it's meant to reiterate what he stressed all through 1 John, that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. That is, God himself incarnate. Jesus is God himself incarnate. So John is here once again affirming the deity of the Lord Jesus. And then his final statement in this verse, he says, in truth and love. So both truth and love are divine attributes of God expressed in his word and his gospel. This final phrase that John uses draws our heart's attention to the, to the perfect balance and inseparable linking of truth and love in all blessings that come from God. Truth being the, the doctrinal correctness regarding the truth about Jesus Christ, and love being the, the God-originated, heavenly love for us that was expressed by Jesus on the cross. Both of these qualities are present and necessary in true Christian relationships. Think about it. Truth, which is not administered in love, can at times, at least, come across as harsh and even uncaring. And then conversely, love that operates without the proper regard, the appropriate regard for God's truth can be, and really is, mere sentimentality. It's not, it's not really love at all. All of God's blessings come from this perfect and inseparable balance of God's truth and God's love. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing to study your word tonight. Thank you for it. Thank you for the blessing of the Apostle John and and all that you inspired him to write. I pray that you will please help us to take from these three wonderful verses all that you have for us tonight, that we may learn, embrace, grow, and mature through the words you have brought to us in tonight's study. Amen. Can you have the outline?